Please be seated. Please allow me one more opportunity to thank you so much for your warm hospitality. It has been a true delight to worship with you, to sing with you, to pray with you, to get to know some of you. It is my joy now to turn in the scriptures with you to Isaiah 65. Our text tonight is Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. And as we turn our attention to God's word, let us pray. Our gracious and mighty Father in heaven, we, we come worshiping and praying and singing and reading, and we are conscious as we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have entered into a wonder world of redemption. We belong to His kingdom because we are united to the risen Christ and have life in His name. And as we marvel at the riches of our salvation, our hearts strain to comprehend the unseen things that we are to seek. And we recognize our own limitations. But we hear the gracious words of our Master, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And we thank you that He comes to us in the person and in the power of the Holy Spirit the Spirit who inspired the Scriptures. And so, Father, we pray that through the Son, by the Spirit, You would open the eyes of our heart that we may behold wonderful things in Your law, that we might have a keen sense of even the unseen things that are yet to unfold according to Your inscrutable wisdom. Would You speak to our hearts and let us behold something of the glory of our Savior. We pray this in His name. Amen. Hear God's Word, holy, inspired, and inerrant, written for you and for me this evening. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. 
The Old Testament scholar John Oswald, in his commentary on the book of Isaiah, says this, Of all the books in the Old Testament, Isaiah is perhaps the richest. Its literary grandeur is unequaled. Its scope is unparalleled. The breadth of its view of God is unmatched. In so many ways, it is a book of superlatives. This is true. Isaiah is an amazing book. What Isaiah writes about is as vast and as rich and as wide as can be imagined. You wouldn't think this if you only read the first verse of Isaiah, however. Isaiah 1.1 starts out this way. The vision of Isaiah, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah begins writing about God's dealings with this tiny chosen nation uh, 27 centuries ago. And at first blush, all of it seems so remote, so far away. And, And you keep reading and you find out that as with the other Old Testament prophets, Isaiah spends much of his 66 chapters talking about Judah and Jerusalem's sins. Uh, Sins like what we just read from Numbers 25. Uh, The consequences of those sins. We now have a vivid picture in our mind. For when Isaiah says in Isaiah 3, Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. And again, if we're just approaching the Bible for the first time, we might read this with some historical interest, but certainly with some critical distance. But if we keep reading, we soon realize that the scope of Isaiah's history is much bigger than God's dealings with this tiny nation because because Judah's history suddenly becomes like a great mirror that reflects the sin and the fall and the exile of, of God's people, uh, even from the Garden of Eden in Adam's fall. And at one point, Isaiah widens his gaze considerably, and he writes in chapter 24, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Probably a reference to the covenant of works with Adam. And then the panorama widens even further as Isaiah then speaks of a redeemer, a servant of God's own choosing who will suffer for the sins of of the remnant of God's people and and reconcile them to God as a trophy of his grace. And suddenly we know that Isaiah is speaking to us as well in Isaiah 52 when he says, Behold, and here the audience is the whole world, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then Isaiah 53 goes on, He will bear the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah is a book of superlatives. It's a book of unparalleled scope. It's a book that we can explore uh, for days and discover the new things that God says He will do. Indeed, the new things that he says he will do through the person and work of Jesus. And and this weekend, we've been studying some of those things. Uh, The new heart, as Dr. Johnson mentioned, that God gives to those who who flee to Christ, uh, those who are awakened by the Holy Spirit in order to flee to Christ. Uh, The new name that that Christ bestows when we are married to him through faith. Uh, The new song that we can sing concerning the worldwide salvation that Jesus has won. 
And we heard this morning something of the new covenant that Christ has inaugurated and sealed with his own precious blood. And friends, all of this newness, all of this heavenly power that is breaking into human history through the person of Jesus culminates in this cosmic vision that Isaiah gives us in chapter 65. It's an Old Testament description of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the consummation of Christ's kingdom. And as we, as we turn to Isaiah 65, it's like we join the Old Testament prophets in straining forward to behold the glorious things that God will do. Because the things of which God speaks here are yet future for us. And this is the destiny of every Christian. This is, this is the, the created world perfected. It's a material world. But it's a world perfected in the splendor of the holiness of God. And the scripture says Jesus will bring it. Jesus will remake this world into a new heaven and earth when he comes again. So this evening, whatever's going on in your life, I'm here to say that you can meditate on nothing more glorious than this. Uh, the future that is in store for you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The context here is, is God speaking. In fact, in verse 17, we, we see that God is, in fact, building on what he's just said before. In verse 16 of this chapter, God has ended that verse by saying that a day is coming when, when all of the distress and all of the trouble that sin brings will, will pass away. And he says his people will be blessed because, quote, the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So when we move into verse 17, and it begins for the, with this little word for, we're discovering the reason why all of the troubles of sin will be forgotten. And the reason is that God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Now here, the reference is not to the invisible heavens, into heaven itself where God's glory is preeminently revealed, but this is referring to the entire visible order, the, the earth and the sky and, and space and all the places that we can see and explore. The whole cosmos, the whole visible earth that God has made, all of it is going to be radically changed at the consummation of history. And sometimes Christians can forget this because in the Christian landscape, the popular imagination is that heaven will be a kind of perpetual disembodied experience where we will be uh, floating on the clouds, uh, for some reason in togas, playing harps uh, forever. And this is not the picture that Scripture gives, not at all. It is true that when someone dies in union with Christ, uh, their spirit, their soul immediately passes into the presence of God. The nanosecond that you breathe your last breath prior to the return of Christ, you, you pass into his presence. But the Bible teaches that beyond this intermediate state, uh, there is a yet more glorious day. There will be a general resurrection where God will raise all bodies from the grave, either to heightened judgment or to heightened blessing. And for his own people, Scripture says that Christ will raise our bodies from the dust and reunite them with our spirits that we might enjoy the presence of the triune God in body and in soul forever. This is the ultimate Sabbath rest of the people of God. 
And then as part of this glorious work, Scripture teaches that God will do even more. God will create an arena that is fit for the everlasting worship of his name by the entire church. He's going to create a glory-filled universe. He's going to bring heaven itself to earth. And his church, his blood-bought people, will worship and adore the living Christ forever in a physical place, as physical as, as Point Pleasant. So the question for us tonight is, what will this new heaven and earth be like? Uh, young boys and girls, I wonder if you've ever wondered that. What, what will the new heavens and new earth be like? Our minds can't quite capture it. Isaiah 64 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So whatever we say, it's going to fall infinitely short of the reality. And yet in Isaiah 65, we get something of a glimpse. And I want to walk with you through four things that it says about the coming new heaven and earth. The first thing is that the new heaven and earth will be a place of joy. It will be a place of joy. God commands us to rejoice because of what he will create. And he tells us that what he will create will itself be an object of joy. And notice this will not be a fleeting joy. God says in verse 18 here, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. And then comes one of, the, one of the most wonderful points in this whole passage in verse 19. God says not only will he give us a reason to rejoice, but God himself will join us in the rejoicing. Notice he uses the very same words in verse 19. In verse 18, he commands us, be glad and rejoice. And then in verse 19, he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. This is a reminder to us that when you, when you love someone, you rejoice when they rejoice, don't you? Uh, you mourn when they mourn. You, you bear burdens when they bear burdens. Your interests are bound up together. Uh, good friends know this. Uh, spouses know this. Parents know this. Couples know this. The Apostle John knew it with, with the church. Remember these words from 3 John. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Well, if that's the case with mere mortals, how much more is it the case uh, with God himself? How much greater must be God's joy? Yes, in a manner befitting his unchanging glory, when his whole church, all of the redeemed by the blood of Christ, walk in the light of his face in a restored and perfected creation. It's a reminder to us that this is what the cross has accomplished. This is what Jesus will bring. Jesus is the one who has secured all of this. He is the one who was afflicted in our affliction because of his great love. And how much more will Jesus rejoice in all of our joy at the consummation? Remember what Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. It was, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the Bible gives us evidence that Jesus rejoices even now. As he rejoiced when his disciples came back uh, from proclaiming the gospel and telling him that even the demons are subjected to us in your name. 
And in Luke chapter 10, remember, we read that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding of this age, and you've revealed them to little children. Well, Jesus rejoices even now on this side of Pentecost as the gospel is preached, as people hope in him, as they come to him, as we live for him. This is Jesus' desire for his people. He said to his disciples in John 15, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. And how much must Jesus' joy erupt with unprecedented praise to his Father, with all of his people, when his joy becomes full in the fullness of his church in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, the last part of verse 19 tells us in part why he and we will rejoice. It says, No more shall be heard in it, that is, in the new creation, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And you and I know that these are realities now. Even as we rejoice in Christ, whatever joy the Christian life has has brought, life in this world is filled with sorrow and pain. I I can remember hearing hearing of a man who said that throughout so much of his life, he he had islands of sorrow and in oceans of joy. And then a particular tragedy struck his life, and he And he flipped everything around and he said, I discover now that I have islands of joy in oceans of sorrow. Maybe you felt like that uh, sometimes. Well, we need to consider the second thing that Isaiah says. The new heavens and earth is not just going to be a place of joy. It's going to be a place without tragedy. It's going to be a place without tragedy. This is what verse 20 is getting at. Now, let's cut to the chase here and say that verse 20 is a strange verse because verse 20 mentions at the end a young man dying a hundred years old and a sinner a hundred years old being accursed. Okay, what is going on here? If anything, the new heaven and new earth must be a place where death is no more. Isn't this what Revelation teaches? Uh, This has caused no little confusion as to how to interpret this passage and particularly this verse. Uh, There are some in the Christian world, even in the Reformed world, uh, that argue that verse 20 must be describing some time prior to the return of Christ, Uh, some time prior to the consummation. Maybe maybe it's describing a kind of thousand-year reign. Uh, An interpretation that derives from a particular reading of Revelation 20, verse 4. Uh, A time when when life is good, but people still die. Some say, in other words, that verse 20, indeed this whole section, pictures some kind of pre-consummation period. In fact, one notable Reformed uh, person uh, says that this verse is a description of the new heavens and the new earth, quote, in the making. Now, that is, the new heavens and new earth is on the way, but it's not complete. And just when you think you've attained the final mountain ridge, suddenly a new ridge pops up right before the end. And that's Isaiah 65. I want to tell you why I believe this is not what verse 20 is saying. I want to tell you what I think it is saying, and then, and then we'll consider why I believe it's saying this. I believe verse 20 is teaching that the new heavens and the new earth will be a place without tragedy, including death. 
which is always tragic. Okay, why, why does it say this? Well, let me give you five quick reasons. First, throughout this section, Isaiah is describing the new heavens and the new earth with reference to the way life is in this fallen world. In other words, Isaiah is setting before us a glorious future picture, but he's using descriptions, realities that pertain to this creation. Verse 19 speaks of weeping. Uh, Verses 21 and 22 speak of building and eating. Verse 23 mentions childbirth. That is to say, verse 20 is, is in the middle of a text that speaks of the new creation in terms that Israel would understand. Sometimes theologians call this prophetic idiom. Prophetic idiom. Prophetic idiom is the way that the Old Testament writers take familiar categories and, and, and reach for something that transcends those categories almost to the point of breaking the categories themselves. In verse 20, Isaiah pushes this way of speaking to the limit as if to say, in the new covenant and in the new creation, at the consummation, no one will be prematurely robbed of life as they are today. The sting of death will be so removed that all grief from life cut short will be gone. Even the sinner, the sinner who deserves to die, will live a hundred years, will live a full life, and even a hundred years will be like the age of a young man. In other words, the idea is a young man who's a hundred years old will just be getting started in this new creation. Now, admittedly, the challenge is that verse 20 mentions death. But I hope you're beginning to see that the the way that it mentions death is designed to show how in the new creation, the sting of death will be removed. It will be removed completely and finally. Okay, second reason, doesn't this interpretation fit with verse 18, where, where God says that his people will rejoice forever? Indeed, it does. Reason three, it also fits with verse 19, that the sound of weeping and distress will be heard no more. As you know, the the death of even a most aged parent or, or grandparent or friend can rob us of joy and bring tears to our eyes. One of the reasons my wife came this morning is she was at a family funeral for a for a great aunt who died in her 90s. But but there were still tears, tears of grief, because death is not natural. God's eternal kingdom will be one in which death itself is banished for all of its inhabitants. And brothers and sisters, that paradoxically is the point of verse 20. Reason four. There's a parallel passage to Isaiah 65, verse 20, in Isaiah 25, verses 8 and 9. And there we read these words. He, that is God, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Listen to this. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's the same command that God gives us in verse 18. Be glad and rejoice. Swallow up death forever. And then the final reason I think it's, it's to be interpreted this way is that there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament of verse 20. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it translates the verse this way. 
neither will there be in that place an untimely death. So all told, I agree with, with the Old Testament scholar Alec Motier when he says verse 20 affirms that over the whole of life, as we should now say, from infancy to old age, the power of death will be destroyed. Friends, I want you to let that sink in. To read verse 20 is to apply it. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. The pain of miscarriage, of cancer, stroke, dementia, heart failure, the pain of broken bones, broken hearts, all of it will be gone forever. Gone forever. The new heaven and earth is a place without tragedy. Every tear will be wiped away in the name of Christ, and all former pain will not come into mind. Third, the new heaven and earth will be a place of total satisfaction. Total satisfaction. A place of joy, a place without tragedy, a place of total satisfaction. When Israel entered the promised land under the old covenant, God laid out the blessing and the curse of the old covenant, and he, and he warned Israel that if they sinned against him, they would eventually be stripped of home and possession. And in the curse section in Deuteronomy 28, God says this, verse 30, You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. This is one of the curses that God warned would befall Israel if they rebelled against God. But here Isaiah is saying that at the consummation, again using that prophetic idiom, the people of God will be able to build their houses and dwell in them without interruption. They'll be able to eat the food that they themselves have planted. He's taking everything that an Israelite heart would yearn for, and Isaiah is using it to hint at the kind of satisfaction that the whole church will enjoy in the new heaven and earth. Well, we can relate to this today, can't we? How, how so many of our efforts at building and making and preserving uh, pass through our fingers like sand. So much of what we think we will build that will last comes to an end. I remember when uh, Steve Jobs uh, died in 2011 of pancreatic cancer. Uh, Steve Jobs, uh, the founder and former CEO of Apple. Uh, and he was an icon of attention to detail and product design, and I, I read an interview with Steve Jobs, and he said this, I want to believe in an afterlife, that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear, that the wisdom you've accumulated, somehow it just lives on. And the interviewer said that, that Jobs paused for a second, and then he said this, but sometimes I think it's like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. And that's why I don't put on-off switches on Apple devices. Do you get that? Your iPhone doesn't have an on-off switch because Steve Jobs wanted to believe in an afterlife. He wanted to believe that the things that he could build would last forever, that we would last forever. But he felt the sting of the fall. 
And I hope he read Isaiah 65, 22. And I hope he believed it. But not so that iPhones would last forever. I don't believe they will. But God says that we will last forever. We will be like the days of a tree, strong, enduring, secure. And and we will know total creaturely satisfaction in the presence of God and the fullness of His glory. And we will be so secure that every lingering threat to children, every fear, every concern for our children will be gone forever. That's the point of verse 23. Every blood-bought believer, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, across the ages, throughout the centuries, all of us will be reunited. And we will be gathered as the offspring who are blessed of the Lord. Verse 23. So what will the new heaven and earth be like? It will be a place of joy forever. It will be a place without tragedy. It will be a place of total satisfaction. And the reason for all of these things is the fourth thing that Isaiah tells us. It will be a place of perfect communion with God. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. If you're like me, you know that a thousand things often interrupt your prayers. A thousand interruptions, doubts, and fears. We, we still struggle with besetting sins. We sin against our Father in heaven time and again. But in His consummated kingdom, all of this will be gone. And every God-honoring thought and request will be answered before the prayer even leaves our lips. The text says in verse 25 that even the violence of the natural world will cease. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Now let me just pause right here. It's interesting, isn't it? that in these waning verses, there is a mention of an enduring tree, a tree that is vital with life. There is the mention of the offspring of the Lord, verse 23, of the animals of creation, verse 25. And herein, at the end of verse 25, there is mention of dust as the serpent's food. What, What does all of this conjure up in your mind? It's reminiscent of Eden. But, but not Eden before the fall. It's Eden perfected. It's Eden consummated by the triumph of the promised seed when Satan is defeated and the serpent is crushed. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now when it talks about the natural world in harmony and the wolf grazing with the lamb, I, I don't think this is merely figurative. If we believe in a pre-fall world where where God says in Genesis 1, verse 30, I have given you every green plant for food to every beast of the earth. Isaiah is here describing the return. Indeed, he's describing the advancement to permanence and perfection, the total harmony between between man and animal, even among the animals themselves, all of it being ripple effects of Christ's reconciling work between God and the sinner, even extending to quelling the hostility of the animal world. And you ask, how does all of this work? I have no idea. But I cannot imagine as well a world where the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
where every living thing in this holy place is living as it should, as the mountain of heaven itself comes down to earth. It's a glorious picture of the newness that Christ will bring. So as we strain and we look ahead to the glorious future of the church of Jesus Christ, the final question for us is, what what about today? What about today? How, How does this promise of the future inform our lives today? Where joy sometimes seems hard in coming, where tragedy strikes, where our works often fall apart, where our prayers sometimes hit the ceiling, where the serpent is still, yes, defeated, but biting and devouring, How does the consummation of the age to come bear on this fallen evil age? Let me just give you three very quick ways. Number one, Isaiah's vision presses home the call for everyone to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to enjoy the blessings of the new creation is to believe and receive and rest in Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection secures this future world. Indeed, the new heavens and earth will be so good because it will be filled with the radiance of Christ himself as risen from the dead. And if you're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, if you're not indwelled by the spirit of the risen Christ, then you will not see the place that his life will fill. Second thing, especially for believers this evening, Scripture points to this consummation again and again as a reason to pursue holiness today. Not just believing on Christ, but pursuing holiness in union with Christ. 2 Peter 3, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter is saying that the conduct of the church, the the life of Christians more and more should be a kind of preview for the world of the beauty and the goodness of the new heavens and earth. And we say in our hearts, how how can we do this? How can we do this in a world of failed hopes and blighted dreams and lost children? Well, Scripture third teaches us that the power and the beauty of the new heaven and earth has already begun in the hearts of believers. Friends, this is what salvation is. It is the beginning of of the new creation. It is the dawn of the world of heaven in the heart of man. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Literally, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The power of Christ's life has broken through. And indeed, as we read Isaiah 65, we can see that so much of what Isaiah promises that that will be the case is already the case in the present. Already, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we can abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. There is a kind of satisfaction we can take in serving the Lord in this life. We can take joy in service of the Lord. Already, today, though we still face it, though we grieve over it, death 
itself for the Christian has been transformed. As Spurgeon says, the king of all terrors has become for the believer in Christ the end of all terrors and the gateway to paradise. So that Paul can say, death is gain. To live as Christ, death is gain. And already, we can approach the Father. We can have communion with the triune God. We can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And already when we pray, He knows what we need before we ask. Before we call, He answers. As we speak, He hears. For everything that we experience in Christ, every sorrow, every pain, every little frustration, God says all of it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God is good to give us this vision, is He not? He's not deceiving you with it. He's blessing you with it. And when it arrives, and when Christ Himself brings all of this to pass, every one of us is going to say, as the Queen of Sheba did when she visited Solomon's kingdom, but in an infinitely greater way, all of us are going to say, I did not believe the reports as I should until my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Let's pray together. Father, we worship and delight in you and in your Son and in the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons forever and ever. And it is our food and drink to commune with you and to behold the glories that you have worked through the person of Jesus Christ, and to expect, by the grace of the Spirit, the glorious things to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.